Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So 2 Samuel 6 and 7 are these two chapters just kind of buried in this entire story. And to me, these two chapters, the best way I could describe them would be like the really expensive bag of soil at Tallahassee Nursery. Pick whatever, whatever Lowe's, wherever you shop for all of your, your nursery and your planting. Good. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't shop for that stuff. That's okay. But you've seen a really rich bag of potting soil before. Now, I'm not talking about the cheap stuff that you buy when it's Mother's Day because you just need stuff in the ground because the plant is really what it's all about. I'm talking about the really expensive bags, like the $15, $20 bags of potting soil that they're just so rich and jet black, filled with fertilizer. They're just... Like you just open it and the contrast between the color of that soil and what you're about to put this plant into, it's like night and day. Especially around here, this red clay that we have or, or if you maybe have like that sandy kind of light gray, brownish soil. When you open one of these bags of, of, of potting soil that you get, like the real expensive ones, I mean, you just open it and it's just so rich and dark. To me, that's what these two chapters are. They're one of those bags of soil. And they're just filled with all of the nutrients and fertilizer that you would need to really get your roots down deep and start producing some fruit and understanding two core themes from Scripture. Worship and prayer. You want to really wrap your head around worship? Stick your fingers deep in the soil of 2 Samuel 6. You want to wrap your head around prayer? Get some dirt under your fingernails by moving the earth around in 2 Samuel 7. That's how rich these texts are today. So that's where we're heading today. We're going to play around in the soil of the Word of God, and we're going to put down some roots in this soil, and we're going to let it inform us what worship should look like not what you think it should look like, not how you grew up, not how your mom or dad taught you, but what does Scripture say about worship? And what does the Word of God show us about prayer? That's what we want for for today. So with that in mind, let's get into it. We're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Around here, we read a little bit, then pause and reflect on it, then we'll read a little bit more. So we're going to start in chapter 6, and we're going to go verses 1 through 4. 2 Samuel 6, 1 says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all of the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Okay, let's pause there. Because to really get into this soil, there's some background that you need to understand. The first background you're going to need is going to start back in Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. This follows the children of Israel. They're released from bondage. They leave Egypt. They wander out into the wilderness, and they're brought before this holy mountain. And at this mountain, God is giving the commands to Israel about what it looks like to be his people. All the things that you're going to have to follow to be my people. The rules, the laws that come along with being my people. I've made you my people, and here's how you act like it. And among these rules and laws were some commands for building pieces of furniture that were central to worship. 
The chief among these, these pieces of furniture was this box. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. Probably about, I don't know, three and a half feet by two and a half feet by two and a half feet. Somewhere there are rough dimensions. But it's this box, and it's this wooden box that's been overlaid with gold. There's these rings on either side of it, and there's this pole that shoots through the middle, and it sticks out on either side. So you've got this box with these poles sticking out on either side, and on the top of it are two cherubim, angels with wings. And they're positioned in such a way where they're facing each other and the tips of their wings are actually touching. So you got this box, these poles, the, the angels are sitting on top and the wings are touching right up here at the top. And we're told in 1 Samuel 4, 4, Psalm 80, verse 1, Isaiah 37, 16, that God rests above the cherubim and this box was essentially considered his throne on earth. Now there's this idea in scripture that you have to wrap your head around. There is God's throne room, there is heaven, there is this other realm in which God is seated and rules from, and then there is this box that was, Moses was commanded to construct, and this box was God's throne on earth. This box, was the place on planet Earth where the realm of heaven and the realm of Earth converged. It was an overlap. This was the one spot on planet Earth where God's presence overlapped with humanity and mankind. This is a very important box. Moses was, construct, was, was told to construct this box. He got some people together. They built this box. This box was with Israel all the way through the wilderness. It, Joshua carried it with them into the promised land. During the time of the judges, it eventually got placed in this one town called Shiloh. And when we started 1 Samuel, this is uh, about 200 years after the box was created, we start 1 Samuel and we find out that the people of Israel haven't been treating God with very much respect, and they haven't been treating the box with much respect. They haven't been going through the proper worship. They haven't been following all the commands. And so God allows the enemy, the Philistines, to capture the ark. And through a series of hilarious events, the ark eventually gets back to Israel and is placed in some dude's backyard. And it's been sitting there ever since. So now, David is king over Israel. And he has captured a new capital city, Jerusalem, and his desire is to get God's throne in this new capital city. This capital city is where David's throne is, it's where his palace is, it's where he's ruling from, but David isn't interested in all of the people thinking that he is the end all king. That's the problem that Saul got himself into. So David's desire, now that he has this, this city, Jerusalem, is to proclaim to everyone that I may be wearing a crown, but the real throne belongs to Yahweh. And so David's desire is to get not just God's presence, but literally his throne that was instructed to be built here on earth, here in Jerusalem. I want God in the midst of his people. I want God's throne in God's city because I'm nothing more than a shepherd. The real king is Yahweh. I, I said all that because I, I want you to I want you to just understand the magnitude of this. This isn't just David deciding, man, you remember that old box? Let's get that thing back in here. Let's get all the relics together. No, it's what that thing symbolized. It, it, it's what that thing actually was. David had a desire in his heart to get God's presence, this place where heaven and earth converge. I want it in my city because God is king. So there's just one problem with that whole plan. Remember when I told you that the box was structured and built in such a way that it had these poles coming out on the ends? The poles were there for a very specific reason. 
The poles were there to carry the ark. Because you don't touch the ark. It is this holy place that is owned by this holy God, and you don't just go up and start touching the king's throne. You don't rub up and come up and give him a noogie. You don't mess with him. Like you don't just run in and fool around in his presence. He's a holy God. He is righteous. There is none like him. You don't do cartwheels into the presence of God. He's a holy God. And so you don't just go touching his stuff. There are strict commandments on how this is all supposed to function. In fact, the commandments are found in Numbers 4.15 and Numbers 7.9. This box was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. So not only can you not just touch this box, but you can't just be any old Joe who picks it up on the, the poles that are sticking out on it. You have to be a priest. And the priests don't just grab it and yank it around and move it all around. They take the box, they lift it, and they place it on their shoulders. The priests were commanded to carry the presence of God on their very shoulders. Now the symbolism of this is important because if you were to transport yourself back in time, what you would see would be the, the, the sermon in illustrative form that God's presence always rests on God's people. Because God's people are God's creation. God created those people. And so you don't put God's presence on something that his creation made for him. You put his presence on his own creation. We are meant to shoulder and carry the presence of God. You don't put it on a cart. And the author starts the story with this because he wants us to understand how dangerous it is to let God's presence rest on things that we build in his name. So we're about to get into it and it's already charged. Because anybody reading this, knowing the commandments would know this is a, this is a big mistake. And the worst part about it, we're told there's a, there's a writer, a first century Jewish writer named Josephus. He, he wrote this book called The Antiquities of the Jews. It's a collection of works that includes some commentary on some of these texts, but also things that were happening around the first century, second temple period. He writes that Abinadab, the guy's house that this ark has been sitting at all these years, he was a Levite, which means he was a priest, which means his sons Uzzah and Ahio were Levites and priests, which means they should have known better than to do this. Now let's get into the story, verse five. It says, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets. What's that? I think it's like a little shaker thing. It's supposed to make like a rattle. Everyone's going like this. So it's supposed to make like rattles, I guess. Tiny tambourines and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor, which is this ground that's a little bit bumpy, right? Any unpaved road in South Georgia, North Florida, they come to the threshing floor of Nakan Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took a hold of it because the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called today Perez Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside and put it into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, the Lord, blessed, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 
And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And he was wearing a linen ephod, which is the garments of a priest. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. All right, now let's back up to verse five. David has good intentions. His heart is in the right place. He wants God's throne in God's city among God's people. That's a worthy venture. The problem is that he disobeyed God's commands. And the disobedience caused, cost Uzzah his life. And this struck David with a wake-up call. We're told in verse nine that David was afraid of the Lord that day because he was confronted by what the Lord did with the magnitude of who this God is. God was a dear, close friend to David that protected him and cared for him for over 20 years in the wilderness, and and now God's doing stuff that David didn't anticipate. Oh, I know you were like that, God. And it struck fear on the inside of him. Now, here's my favorite part of this story. There were commands in God's word to not do what these guys were doing. There was a list. Don't do this. Here's how you carry God's stuff. It's not, you don't put it in a cart, you carry it. Carry it on the shoulders of the priests. There was a list, but apparently the list wasn't enough. Having a list of simple commands of what you do and you don't do, it isn't enough. It's never been enough. And if you're a Christian sitting here thinking, man, I feel like this Christian walk would be a lot easier if I just knew what to do and what not to do. No, it wouldn't. It's never been easier with a list of things to do and not do because we had those and it didn't work. So what are we given? We're given a story. We're given a story. We're given those commands wrapped in a story. And what you have now is David beholding one of his close friends. He knew Uzzah. His life was taken from him because he did something he wasn't supposed to do. And this story invites you to consider, man, um, I'm kind of like Uzzah. This story invites you to step into it and consider yourself sitting on the back of that cart thinking this amazing thing that you've just done on God's behalf of helping him out by getting him from point A to point B. You're gonna take care of God, you're gonna care for him on this little religious structure that you've built with wheels and it's so, it's, it looks good, the cart is gorgeous. Right? Got a nice speaker system to it. It's got 20 inch rims. It's got a smoke machine. It's appealing to non believers. And we're just going to put God's present right on top of it. We don't care what he has said about himself and how he wants to be worshiped, but we're going to put his presence right on this cart that we built, that we like, that's easier for us. We're not going to wear out our shoulders. We're not going to shoulder his presence. It's not going to be tough. We're just going to wheel this thing from point A to point B. And if it gets jostled around, then we'll just care for God. We'll take care of him. We'll tell him what he can and can't do. And we'll, we'll reposition him. And we'll, we'll move him around this way in case one aspect of his personality offends this person. We'll just turn it so you don't see it anymore. And then we're just sitting there on the cart. And we're, we put ourselves in Uzzah's seat. And we, we're, we, we see the story. And that's the beauty of it. It's wrapped in a story. So you see yourself just bouncing on that cart. And look what we've done for God. Isn't this great? Oh, oh. And then pfft, you're dead. That's the sound you make when you die, by the way. (laughs) And so the story invites you to consider, hey, the fear that struck David, that fear better strike you, because we're not playing games. We're not here to build religious institutions. We're not here to build a legacy. We're here to steward and care for and shoulder the presence of God and bring it to the nations. That's why we're here. We're not here to build a name for ourselves. We're not here to build a new cart. We're not here to make it appealing. We're here to deliver the mail. We've been given a message and we deliver it. And we deliver it by carrying the very presence. 
And so the reality that God would be upset with us reworking his commands to better suit our needs and to help the nations swallow it a little bit better, it should strike you with fear that God is not okay with that. That he doesn't like that at all. Even with your best intentions, you did it with the best of intentions. He doesn't care. His commands come before your greatest intentions. And so, this ark that was placed on this cart starts bouncing around. Uzzah reaches out to position it. Uzzah is struck dead, and then David has a decision to make. Do I keep going, or do I pause and calmly reflect on what's going on around me? So he chooses the second. He puts the ark in the house of this guy named Obed-Edom. And Obed-Edom, immediately his household starts getting blessed. And the news gets back to David. Man, that ark that you put in my guy's backyard, he's blessed beyond measure. And the desire inside of David gets rekindled. Oh man, I want that for this whole city. I want that, but I've also got this fear inside of me that I gotta do it the right way. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put together a new plan to get this ark back. And I wanna lay out this plan for you in a way where visually you can see it. We're gonna start by showing you a map of how far this is and where these locations are. So we're gonna start by zooming in here. This is really zoomed in, probably one of the most zoomed in maps we've done. So I left the Dead Sea down in the bottom right corner just so you can kind of get in familiar with the landscape. But Jerusalem is here, the convergence of these roads. Kiriath-Jerim is where the ark was sitting when the story began. They were able to move the ark from Kiriath-Jerim to Perez-Uzzah, about that distance, about three miles or so. But when they hit this spot right here, this is where Uzzah dies, and they put the house and uh, the, the ark in the house of Obed-Edom, and, and they're waiting. So when David decides, let's go ahead and get the ark back to Jerusalem, we're going to put a plan together. The distance David has to travel is about three miles, all right? Now, I want you to keep that in mind, because what I want to do now is I want to put together a, a series of slides with some math on it. Now, I don't want to scare you. It's not hard math but it is math. And you probably didn't anticipate having to do math when you came to church today. But this is gonna be good for you. So the, here's the first slide I wanna show you. If we're gonna average the, the, just an average human, it takes 2,000 steps to walk one mile. Now that is not my average. But that is the average of, of many normally, you know, normal height people, about 2,000 steps-ish. If they had to go three miles, 2,000 steps times three miles equals 6,000 steps, okay? If you go to the next slide, 6,000 steps divided by stopping every six steps. So we're told that as the priests were going along that they they would stop every six steps to make a sacrifice. That means 6,000 divided by six, they stopped 1,000 times in three miles. Now let's factor in the cost of sacrifices. Now I looked this up online. A big fat bull that you would use for sacrifices, if you go to the next slide, is approximately $3,000 to $5,000. That's an average. But they didn't just sacrifice an oxen, they also sacrificed a fatted animal. So let's take the low average of the oxen, $3,000, and let's throw in another thousand for the fatted oxen. If you take $4,000 and you multiply it times a thousand stops, you get $4 million. It costs David in today's money $4 million to move the ark three miles. Three miles is the distance from the Thomasville Road I-10 exit to the Thomasville Road Walmart. Three miles, $4 million. Now I want that number to sink into your brain. Would you, would you pay that amount of money if worship was on the line? 
Is, 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 it, is it worth $4 million? Because $4 million wasn't the only cost that David had in order to get the presence of God back into Jerusalem. There was also the, uh, the, the physical cost. He's out there all day in the, in the sun, he's sweating. There's the emotional cost of his friend dying and we're about to find out that his wife is making fun of him, people are laughing at him. There's also the time cost, because you're stopping a thousand times to make a sacrifice every six steps. You're not doing this in a day. This is a whole weekend adventure. So the whole weekend is now gone. But I want you to consider all of the expense that David paid in this posture of worship. Four million dollars, a whole weekend his emotional capacity, his, his, the, the, the uh, uh, physical aspects of this. And I want you to consider that it doesn't matter how much this cost, David probably would have paid 10 million, 50 million, 100 million. It wouldn't have mattered. If it took three years to get the ark three miles, David would have done it. Why? Because there was something more valuable to David than money, and time, and his emotions, and his physical strength. And really, isn't that how the economy is set up now? Okay, if I've got a $10 bill in my wallet, and I want one of those good, good pub subs, the chicken tender ones from Publix, you know what I'm talking about? The ones that go on sale every now and then, and it's, it's the foot long, and they put those chicken tenders, fried chicken tenders inside of bread, come on. How can you get anything better than that? Bread on bread and then chicken and those garlic pickles. He, I'm gonna walk up to the deli counter and I have to make a decision. What's more valuable to me? Having the $10 in my pocket or having that chicken tender sub in my belly? What is more important and valuable? I can tell you what it is. It's having that chicken tender sub in my belly. And so I will take that $10 and I will trade that because to me that sub is worth more than that $10. I would rather have that than this. It doesn't matter how much money or time David had, none of it compared to having the presence of God in Jerusalem. Why? Because through David's eyes, there is no treasure greater than Yahweh. And that's the invitation for us to consider as we're reading through this. Man, $4 million, that's a lot. I don't know if I'd do that. The moment you start calculating the cost of worship and, a, and understanding the cost that comes with worship, in the New Testament, we have the same story. The woman who, who took her expensive anointing oil and just poured it on the feet of Jesus. What does that act mean? It means the same thing that this act means that there is no treasure, no monetary value, no time, no emotion, there is no value that I have that is greater than Jesus Christ. And I would gladly trade all of it right up into my very life. I don't love my own life unto death. I would gladly lay it down because I treasure him more than anything. This is what David is communicating. And this emotion just stirs him into dancing. And so he starts dancing with all his might. And then his wife sees him. Let's go to verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to eat to each one, and then all the people departed, each to his house. Kind of reminds you of Jesus feeding the 5,000, doesn't it? Everyone gathers to hear the word for worship, and the good king always sends them away with a full belly. Verse 20, David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. 
David said to Michal, it was before the Lord. Um, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself even more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes, honey. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken and apparently have a problem with, by them I'm gonna be held in honor. Watch this. Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Dave, excuse me, David's wife despises David's worship, accuses him of performing for all the people. She says essentially in verse 20, you did this because the ladies were watching. And David responds in verse 21, I did it because God was watching. That's why I did it. This is a fascinating picture to me because what you have is one man who's worshiping the Lord this whole story. But his story of worshiping the Lord is bracketed by two people who are not worshiping. David is seen in this story as worshiping and leading others into worship, but on the front end of the story, you've got this guy named Uzzah who's not worshiping because he's too busy managing the machine of religion. And on the back end of the story, after you've got David worshiping and leading others in worship, you've got this other woman, his wife, who's also not worshiping because she's too busy, too busy judging the other worshiper. I said what I said. She's too busy <laughs> judging David for worshiping. This is fascinating. So what is the author telling us? He's asking you to consider what worship looks like and the dangers of not worshiping. Because you've got one person worshiping the Lord with fear and reverence and another person who's so busy managing the religious systems of the Lord that he's actually robbed of his own life. And another person who is so busy being consumed judging the worship of other people, she's also robbed of the ability to give life. So what is the author telling us? That worship is a matter of life and death. That's what's, on, that's what's on the line here. This is the soil of this chapter. And 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, excuse me 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is, is God-breathed, it's, it's profitable for teaching, correcting, training. And this chapter falls into that category. We are given this story because it is offering us that rich soil that shapes and teaches us about worship. It shows us that worship is a matter of life and death. That if you spend most of your time managing the, the, the machine of worship, or you spend most of your time judging the people who are worshiping, you're gonna be robbed of something. And so when you're understanding worship, you have to understand that it should be an overflow of the heart like David gives us. It, it, should, it should be some form of inconvenient and uncomfortable and costly. There should be some transfer of value where you take something that is precious to you and you cast it down at the feet of the king in order to demonstrate how, how much more valuable he is than the thing that you previously held as valuable. This is the whole point of the treasure buried in the field, that the man would sell everything he had just to get that one treasure. That's the value of everything we're talking about. Trading in things that you find are of highest value for something that you just discovered is even more valuable to you. I just can't shake this picture. Of this man over here, so busy managing the systems of worship and God's kingdom. I just, I, I can't lose the power of that imagery because of how easy it is for us to do that. 
How easy it is to lose the heart of worship because you are so enamored with making sure the machine keeps running. And how easy it is to lose a heart of worship because you are so preoccupied looking at everyone else and the way they worship. With a critical eye, both of those ends of the spectrum, both of them will rob you of your heart of worship and it will only produce death. So this chapter six, rich chapter about worship, and then chapter seven is this rich chapter about prayer. Let's get through it. Chapter seven, verse one. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, will you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I was brought up by the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling and in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I command to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut, you off, cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. For the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, and you and who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, the prophet is speaking God is telling the prophet to tell David this and he's speaking about Solomon, but we know that this is a foreshadow of something even better. Solomon will be, come from the line of David and he will build an actual house for God's presence. But then we have Jesus, the New Testament, who is from the line of David saying, hey, this temple, I'm gonna tear it down and rebuild it in three days. I'm gonna build a better temple. And this is gonna be an everlasting kingdom. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all of these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. All right, now let's summarize this. What's happening back in verse one is David and Nathan are hanging out on their porch one night surveying all the amazing thing God's been up to. Man, look at what God's done, right? Probably a couple high fives, couple hoots and hollers, excited, man, look at what God's done. God's presence is back, this is amazing. And David's like, yeah, there's just one thing, man. Like I look down there and I'm up here in this palace and God's down there in that tent God should have a house. We need to build him a temple. And the prophet Nathan's response is like, look, man, God is with you in everything you do. Like, it's obvious. If you have that thought in your mind, God probably put it there. Why don't you just go do it? And they're all like, yeah, we should do it. And then that night, God speaks to Nathan. And what God says to Nathan is, um, have I ever asked for a house? All this time that I've been wandering around with the children of Israel, I've been in a tent on the move with my people. In fact, I kind of like it that way. I like moving in the midst of my people. 
I've never asked for a house. This desire that you have to build something for me, I want you to go tell David it's not gonna happen. In fact, I'm gonna build something for you. Now, I know you've got a desire on the inside of your heart, you want this, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna fulfill the desire of your heart, I'm gonna let your son do it, but you're not gonna do it for me. Now, the question I have as I'm reading through this, like, why did God not allow David to build this house for him? Why couldn't David do it? Now, Scripture alludes to David being a man of war and his character, but there's another aspect to this that I think is really important. And it comes from our understanding of what happens when you start doing a building project. What happens when you start wanting to renovate your home or start making major changes to the structural integrity of things. All of a sudden you got more people in your house than you had anticipated, people you don't recognize. You're spending more money than you had anticipated and there's, there's all kinds of sounds that weren't there before and you're constantly being asked to like revisit the plans and make changes because the economy's shifting and you couldn't afford those cabinets anymore, now we're gonna do the, and all of a sudden, the work of building something becomes the only thing you think about. Building projects have a way of distracting from the reality that God is currently building something inside of you. The more you start getting all of this stuff together, and, and this, is, this is what the issue was. When you start getting all of these cedars in from Lebanon and you get all of these workers and everyone's, all of a sudden, now the sound of the priests worshiping around the ark is drowned out by the sound of chisels and hammers and people shouting. And then eventually all of the people's attention is shifted towards this new great thing that we're building in God's name and the ark is back behind us and we've forgotten it. I think one of the big reasons why God didn't let David build this is because God was too busy building something inside of David and the moment David started building something for God it would have distracted from what God was doing in David which was building an eternal kingdom. Now what is David's response to this? This is where the soil of prayer comes in. Verse 18. Then King David went, he sat before the Lord and said, who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? I just got the message from Nathan of what you said you're gonna build me a, a kingdom? You're gonna build me something? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes to do just to get me here. Oh Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is the instruction for all mankind? You do this with everybody? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, oh Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is, none, there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people and whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. Oh, you, oh, Lord became their God. And now, O oh Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning this house, and do as you have spoken, because your name is gonna be magnified forever. Saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and, and now you're saying that the Lord, is how, the, the, the Lord is over the house of your servant David, and that's gonna be established before you forever? For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying I will build you a house, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. You said it, not me, and now I'm just asking you that you do it. Now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised to this good thing to your servant. 
Now therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David's response to the word of the Lord is, who am I that you would do this stuff for me? And not only who am I that you would do this stuff for me, but you made a name for yourself in Egypt and now you're gonna make a name for yourself through me in my own life? There is no God like you. I want your name to be known across the entire earth. This is the soil of prayer in 2 Samuel 7. And I want you to take just a moment as we close to sift through this soil. What is David teaching us about prayer? First thing is that prayer is filled with humility, not pride. The moment you approach the Lord with a list of all the things you've done in his name, you might as well say amen and get out of the prayer closet. You aren't approaching a holy God. You're approaching a little God that you think you are greater than. David's view of God was that he was a little tiny nothing and God was everything. And who was this God to do something in his life? Humility. The second thing is that his prayer, his prayer was filled with praise and glory to God and not to himself. There was no list of his accomplishments. There was no list of things he was going to do for God if God gave him the resources. That didn't work out very well. That attitude and posture killed Uzzah. So there's no list of God, I wanna do this for you and I wanna do this for you and I, I, wanna be, I want more influence and I want bigger stuff. I want, there's none of that. All that we see is humility and praise to the God who is greater than him. And the last thing we see is that his prayer is filled with, listen, petitions, not demands. You don't come to a holy God and start demanding things. Lord, I demand this, I decree this. That's not how you approach a holy, unless you wanna die. You don't go handling his presence like that. You petition the king. Lord, you're the one who brought this up, and so I'm just praying that your will would be done. If this is what you want, God, it's also what I want. You know my heart, and so I'm just praying your will. I want your things to be done. Please, in the name of God Almighty, bring your name, fame across the entire earth. Petition, not demand. This model for prayer, it shapes our posture. It reminds us that Prayer is filled with gratitude for what God has already done, not, not worming him into trying to get him to do something for us. Prayer is not a, a, a con artist exchange of trying to convince God that we're worth his time. It is a reflection of the fact that he has already decreed that, that he has done these things on our behalf and it is a response to that. It doesn't puff up and it postures this generosity on the inside of us to start leaking out to everybody else. And we said this before, the generosity of God deeply affected David and it made him a generous person and it comes out in his prayer life. So 2 Samuel 6 and 7, rich soil filled with fertilizer to help produce the fruit of worship in your life, to help cultivate a rich prayer life, a rich worship and prayer life combined together. And there's only one thing left to do. To ask yourself, after reading 2 Samuel 6 and 7, are you ready to put your roots deep into the jet black words on this page? in the same way that you would crack open a new bag of soil that you're gonna put in this hole to feed this plant that you're planting. The word of God is just like that. Are you ready today to take the roots of your heart and sink them deep into this, these two chapters and consider changing your prayer life and your worship life? 
Are you at a place where you're ready to let the word of God tell you how you're supposed to be worship, worshiping the Lord, to obey the commands that scripture tells us about worship, and to drop this superficial preference that we bring into worship? Because most of the issues that we have when it comes to things like musical worship are issues of preference, not command. There is no command to only sing hymns. I love hymns. But your desire to, to love hymns, that's preference. It's not command. And if we're not careful, then preferences get swapped for commands, and we start bearing the weight of our commands on people's shoulders, and God has issue with that. Now you take any genre of music, I'm not just knocking on hymns, I love hymns, I'm just saying that we as a people have a habit in, in the culture of worship and prayer of taking our tradition and our preference and making that a command. And unless that is presented before us, oh, we can't eat the meal, I can't participate, I can't sing that. That's too fast, that's too slow, too many words, not enough words, why are we repeating the same thing nine times? Hey, why don't you start singing, Michal? How about you stop critiquing and start singing? Because if you don't, you might just be robbed of the ability to enjoy any fruitfulness in your life at all. And that goes for your prayer life too. If your prayer life is nothing more than a laundry list of your accomplishments or a Christmas list like you would give Santa Claus, then your prayer life is gonna continue to be unfruitful and barren. But if you can seize what's in this soil, if you can let it sift through your fingers, get under your fingernails, and start looking at the beauty of coming to a holy God in humble prayer and petitioning him rather than requesting and demanding, but petition, Lord, please, just I'm bringing this petition, and I trust the faith that I have to bring this to you, that is the same faith I have to trust your answer, whether it's a yes or a no. When that starts framing your worship and your prayer life, then we're making some progress and you're growing as a believer. So I'm asking you today, is this scripture gonna feed your soul to produce fruitful worship and prayer? That's up to you, not up to me. I'm just delivering the mail and telling you what the scripture says. It's up to you to make a decision about what you're gonna do with it. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.